Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Figlioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I am here with the ultimate insider, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith, happy new year to you. We haven't talked. Happy New Year to you as well, Tom. It's a whole new year ahead of us, and we're excited to get going. And you've got a new theme for the podcast. You've completed, I think, the new normal small mini-series within a series, and we're moving on to some new conversations, right? Yes, we have completed the new normal. We hope that everybody understands the new normal. (laughs) Walk into the new year, which was the goal, which was to take the last four episodes of 23 and lay out a set of high-level discussions with heads of strategy to sort of understand what we're walking into in 24. And then we're shifting a little bit with this particular episode with Pat Ryan, who's the CEO of Prescani, and trying to think about a new topic that we've kind of touched on over the years, but probably with the foremost expert in this, given his role at Prescani for the last number of years, all around patient experience and how important patient experience is, also touching a little bit about sort of employee wellness and clinician wellness, and then most importantly, wrapped around all of that trust. And how do you think about trust as the various participants in the healthcare ecosystem and how important trust is going to be over the next 10 years? Yeah, I'm on the on more of the med tech side. So I have to say, I haven't talked or even thought a lot about the patient aspect of healthcare. Obviously, you think about it in terms of clinical outcomes, but on the healthcare side, there seems to be more attention being paid to the entire patient experience, even post-intervention with the medical device. So I think this is a, a great topic. And one, again, at least from the medtech side, I haven't given a lot of thought. Is this get enough attention on sort of the provider payer side, the part of healthcare that you work in more of, or does it need more attention? I think, I mean, look, I think it's omnipresent and I think everybody thinks about it from time to time. And we often bring it into our board meetings as well. And I try to get a lot of my companies when I'm on the boards to start with voice of customer, no matter what they are. And a lot of times that voice of customer, because we do a lot of clinical delivery businesses happen to do with the patient or the consumer. And I think that grounds a board meeting. I think that grounds a company about why we're doing all this, even on the med tech landscape, like the outcomes of some of that med tech devices that people use, it changes their lives. I think it's critically important. And the interesting part about the point you're making about sort of the longitudinal sort of continuum of care side of this is Prescani is a great case in point. And we talk a little bit about the history with Pat. They started as this vendor that was just focused on a government regulations called HCAPS, which is a patient experience scorecard, if you will, that you have to fill out after an episode, typically at an inpatient environment or an outpatient environment for a health system. They now have, over many, many years, thought and built a set of capabilities from analytics consulting, and other capabilities, end-to-end experience. So not just the regulatory pathway, but how do you think about patient experience, trust, employee wellness, clinician wellness, et cetera? And how do you think about that analytically? And what are you actually seeing across the entire continuum and across the entire patient experience? So to your point, that's exactly why Prescani exists. And really what they have now built out is a massive platform to be able to do that. They're by far, I believe, the number one patient experience kind of platform player in the market today. And then every time they have seen a bunch of other players out there, they've actually acquired a number of companies over the years to sort of continue to build out their footprint. That's fantastic. Now, it's a it's an important conversation, a timely conversation, and uh, one I'm sure people 
will enjoy. So uh, let's hear from Patrick Ryan. He's chairman and CEO of Press Ganey. All right. Welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We are shifting gears a bit. We've been talking a little bit about the new normal environment and now onto a topic and onto a friend that I've wanted on for a while. And I finally got him to say yes, which is exciting. But welcome, Pat Ryan, the chairman and CEO of Press Ganey. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Keith, thanks for having me. Good to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days. I know it's pretty sad that we're in the same city and we're not actually in the same room. So, but we'll, we'll, exactly. I should have <laughs> jogged across the street, but I don't jog much at this age. That's right. That's right. We could have played golf and done it. That would have been more fun. That would have been fun. <laughs> well, good. Well, Pat, I am really excited to dive into all things patient experience with you and all things actually, which I, a lot of people know, but may not know, all things entrepreneurial and company building. I think you are one of the foremost, in my opinion, company builders in our market over the last number of decades. And it's going to be good to kind of dive into that as well. But before we get there. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. That's very kind of you to say. I've always looked from afar and and we've always passed notes back and forth. So I appreciate that. But let's start with you. Like, let's start maybe giving people some of that color. A lot of people listen to this that are newer to the industry, at least over the last five, seven years, even 10 years. How did you get into this crazy world? And you've been at a bunch of different spots and led a bunch of different really interesting places, let alone what you're doing at Prescani right now. But it'd be great to kind of hear that background. Well, thanks. My dad was a veterinarian. So I have been around a version of healthcare since I was a small child, and he was also an entrepreneur when you run your own practice, your own hospital, et cetera. So I started working in healthcare for animals very early in my career. As I came out of college, I worked for a company called American Hospital Supply, which was uh, some of the predecessor companies to Thermo Fisher, Baxter, Cardinal. I worked there for four years selling into the laboratory space. And it was just at the advent of people talking about outpatient treatments and moving things outpatient. And so I started a company very early in my career. I was 26 in the outpatient imaging space for cardiologists and obstetricians and ran that for the combined company for 11 years. It was bought by private equity. And and after that, I moved into the physician practice management business for a number of years, which was acquired. And then I was in the dialysis industry for a number of years before I ended up going into direct-to-consumer diabetes and ending up uh, on a number of hospital boards and getting a phone call from the folks who own Prescani and saying, would I be interested in helping them? I I came in really in the role of uh, just support from someone who had been a client for a number of years and helped them out for a few months and then took the CEO role, what will be 13 years ago. I was going to say, it's been a journey for you in that role. So seven companies over 43 years. Healthcare is an amazing career. It's one of the few careers you can wake up in the morning and feel like you're going to do some good for people and uh, come home at night and feel uh, that you uh, change people's lives trajectories uh, with a little bit of your work. And I think, you know, you're like one of those unique people that have seen not only you've been at this for a number of decades, but you've seen a lot of different, I mean, your point about outpatient, like how long ago was that point, right? And we're still talking about the outpatient transition. And you've seen so many different angles of this, and you've been on kind of the nonprofit and the for-profit and the private equity side of the equation. And whenever I always have private equity questions, things like that, you're always the first person I call because you really understand that landscape well, given all the people you've worked with in that space. Private equity, I've worked with, uh, I don't know, seven or eight private equity firms. They're great people to work with. They've got a very clear understanding of uh, the model. One of the things I've learned from private equity is 
They are very clear on what their model is, what the levers in a business are, what their purpose in owning that business is, and how they're going to go about execution. They're smart folks. Most of them are my good friends to this day. And I think I was fortunate to early in my career meet up with some of the original healthcare investors, like guys like Russ Carson in this space, who were both great mentors and teaching me from a way in which to run a business and to uh, run a workforce and how to build a real culture, as well as understand how you uh, drive towards success. And success comes from value first, delivering what the uh, client, patient, family needs, and then running the business around that. And so let's start there with Prescani. I mean, Prescani has such a storied history, and I think you have advanced the ball in the number of years that you've been there in so many different angles there. At the core of it, it's always kind of been about sort of patient experience, right? But I would love sort of just to understand the history and how you think about the business today versus when you first took it over and things of that degree. Well, yeah, you know, great histories. Doctors Press and Ganey were Notre Dame professors and started the business in 1985 with a simple premise that the patient's voice may matter. And it turns out it's the most important voice and we should all listen uh, very actively to it. And today, that part of the business represents just about half of the company. As the world has evolved, we've seen the movement towards the integration, really, of safety, engagement, quality, and experience of care. It's all intertwined, and the overall consumerism movement. So we really have a business now that looks across the entire enterprise in health systems. We try to break down the silos between departments and make sure that we're dealing with one organization with a program of high reliability that leads to a safe place for both the patients and families the clinical team and the entire team in an organization, which leads to great uh, patient engagement and, and a safe place to work. And so at the core, the core of that business for a long period of time that many people know is sort of a regulatory component, a policy component around age caps and sort of managing a lot of that sort of policy age caps. But what's been unique to watch to your point about safety and experience and what do you do after all of that, it seems like you've really fostered the business to sort of really move it away from not just sort of capturing the information, measuring the information with what is a government protocol in certain subsectors of the space. But then what do you do with it after? Like, how do you actually fundamentally change? And it seems like a lot of your acquisitions, a lot of your strategies seems to be wrapped around that. Is that fair? It's fair. Listen, I I took the uh, job 13 years ago, and I was somewhat shocked, to be honest with you, having been a provider of direct patient care at the way listening to the patient's voice was being accomplished in health systems. It was a paper survey. The regulatory environment is really just 300 surveys a year. What people don't realize is we do 400 million surveys digitally today across the majority of health systems in the U.S. And the difference between then and now is that people have recognized that it's really operating data. If you can drill down and segment on a unit by unit, clinician by clinician basis, you can identify where there are opportunities to build your culture off of, and there are opportunities to improve your culture off of. So when I was on the board of Beth Israel Deaconess, we used to look at the patient data first, financial data second, and really drill down on that. And today, you need to look at the data combined with your safety data, combined with your employee engagement data, and look at where are the opportunities to drive improvement. And an interesting fact that most people don't know, the highest margin health systems in the country also have the highest scores because value leads to loyalty, leads to long-term community loyalty. It is quite ironic when you look through the data, which you've done a lot of, and I did a lot in my old life at Premier, 
the highest quality, the highest safety, the best patient experience not only usually depicts the lowest cost of care, but usually the best sort of financial outcome to your point as well, which is seems pretty logical, but a little little there. If you were running any consumer business, and, and I've run a direct-to-consumer business, you would look at designing that around the consumer and then build your systems backwards to make sure you added value. Healthcare just wasn't created that way. And so we're working with an infrastructure and a basically a history that was built from the inside out. And in order to succeed in the future, everybody's going to have to really continue to evolve towards recognizing that the consumer comes first. The engagement of your workforce has to be part and parcel to that. And then looking at the way in which you respect and deliver value to that community is going to be really important. And healthcare is still a really difficult place to get care. I unfortunately am uh, cresting the 65 mark, and uh, that means that I'm going to be using more of it over time. And if I didn't have my friends and my contacts to pick up the phone, which I spend a fair amount of each week doing for friends, there's still a lot of friction in order to get into the system, to be communicated with throughout the system, the care transitions. So I think there will be a big movement to use the digital capabilities, the analytic capabilities to drive fundamental and execution. And really thinking about the digital support, the data support, and the technology support to drive greater execution and eliminate friction points, just like trying to schedule or trying to get to an emergency room today. And so like if you like we talk a lot at the firm and and you and I have talked about this as well when we talked about some of the firm's thoughts about the growing complexity about what we call care anywhere, which you can pick up your phone, you can go to CVS, you can go to Beth Israel to your point, Mass General in our town, you can go to a doctor's office, one medical, I'm going to get my flu shot this afternoon on that. That environment has gotten infinitely complex. We just finished a slide that showed care delivery in the 1990s, which literally was a hospital and a doctor's office compared to a care delivery in the 2020s, which is this proliferation of everything. And so how does that impact your business? And then more importantly, downstream to these folks, how do you think about patient experience from in-person, which traditionally you've been a part of, to virtual, to hybrid integrated workflows, which will come in time here, which is... Some part of your experience is virtual. Some part of your experience is in person. How do you how do you measure that? Uh, well, it's a great question, and uh, we do it right now. You have to listen everywhere. So start with we listen to the consumer by collecting data from various sources off the web as to what's being said, both from your employee base and your patient base. What are they saying out in the community? As they enter care, we listen through multiple vehicles, digital vehicles, and as they exit, we listen. We listen from the member experience. We we happen to be one of the largest providers or the largest provider of member experience data for health plans. And we work with CVS and others, Walgreens, et cetera, to collect data in those sources. And you can list all the large medical practices. We work there. But, you know, our job is to coordinate that data. We have a big project right now, which is pretty exciting. We're actually taking all of those data sets and providing those data sets both into the payer space where they can look at what their members are experiencing and to the provider space where they can see what their patients and families are experiencing and then addressing what are the needs in those areas. And it's very intuitive. And as you sit down to build your strategic plan for a health system, having that consumer's voice, understanding where the deficiencies are and the opportunities are for your program and where you want to make your investments are critical. But care is going to be much different. You know, we plan 
right now we think about things in two year cycles, three year cycles. The speed at which things are changing are fairly dramatic. If you step back and you really, because I know some of your acquisitions and I saw some of the things that you have built over the years that are very different than like, hey, we're to your point, we're doing a survey for HCAPs or whatever. You could potentially, maybe you are doing this, you could potentially do a sentiment of care by region, by city, by geo, I would think. We have it. I can break down the data by market in any detail. For example, two things that uh, we've done. We have a safety collaborative, which is free, and uh, we have the largest PSO patient safety office for the entire country. And that allows us to share events without uh, the threat of any sort of issues around uh, liability. And therefore, we can look at best practices. What are the issues? What are the trends in the market? And share that data out with our clients. We do it as a under the concept of a rising tide lifts all boats and safer community is critical for us. So that collaborative, we can look at the data really from any way, market, size of hospitals, type of people, demographic you can imagine. We also have a DEI collaborative. And we can look at, if you think about the issues around equity and care, we can look at every market with regard to those issues and how it's being experienced through the eyes of the patient and the family. So very exciting things. And as you think of AI, predictive analytics, machine learning, the the speed at which we're going to be able to provide that data and for people to be able to act and execute. And that's sort of the give the insight and the action required to execute on. And Pat, as you tease this out, because I saw another interview with you where you were talking a little bit about this, which is the intertwinedness of, yes, quality, safety, patient experience. But if you kind of wrap all that together into a word, trust, and you start thinking about the constituents of the different players in the sector where the providers really have held most of the trust, the higher trust scores across the equation versus, say, a payer versus, say, other entities. How do you think that looks today? And then, especially coming out of COVID, and then where do you think that goes? And do you think that's, is that a board level consumption thing for your average health system or your average payer that needs to be thought about continually? Absolutely. It would be the uh, first answer to whether a board should be considering it. And I think I've sat on seven hospital boards over the years. I'd have to count them on my fingers to be exact. So don't hold me to that number. But listen, patients want to trust their providers. Doctors and nurses get very high scores. And if they don't get a score, it's really worth looking at and understanding what it means because people come into a health system wanting to have a good experience and wanting that trust. Where it breaks down is a number of the friction points that they hit as they go through the system. Can they get scheduled? Can they get the next test done? Can they get coordinated to the specialist? Do they get referred to the right home care agency? So on and so forth. And so if I were running a health system, I would think of doing a few things. One is I would focus on the silos in my organization and determine how can I eliminate those silos. Two, I would develop a very keen strategy around the data analytics and insights that I was going to work from. And I would make sure my entire organization did that. And I would look at all those friction points very clearly and identify ways in which to reduce the friction points because trust is is critical. And you know that when you go into a health system, whether it's for a annual physical or there's some potential diagnosis that you're trying to confirm, the anxiety level and blood pressure goes up the minute you see 
the facility, the clinic, wherever you're going, you walk into CVS to get your flu shot. I just got one this weekend with a person. I always look at the person and want to know how many shots have they given. I, I'm hoping it's not their first day. So the ability to reduce that anxiety and to give people trust. And it's not only your patients and families and the consumers in your market, your doctors, physicians, really everyone across the health system has to trust that their leaders and organization have them in mind. Is that become a sentiment? I mean, the interesting part, at least thinking about that pull up for me is like, as payers start becoming more providers, which we've seen everywhere, how that enters the equation as well, because to your point about trust, most of it has to do with clinical delivery. Does the spread of trust change a little bit for players like Optum and Humana and others that are delivering different clinical deliveries? And they have to be thinking about that very differently than maybe they ever have before. The interesting thing you can map out in an organization a trust and respect and at the various points of entry. So let's start with the phone call or scheduling. And if you do that really well, and then you move to a clinician, the trust factor, the experience factor goes up dramatically. If you have a difficulty scheduling and you have friction at that level, and then you go to the clinic and they do the same fantastic job that the other person did that didn't have that friction, it's still, you see the measurement change as they hit these friction points. You can get it back or some of it back with regard to the overall experience, but friction at various points does impact the overall experience. If you refer to a home care agency that does not do a good job, the overall system that reflects on them, even though they may not own that system. So there are a lot of decisions around trust and respect that you should think about. From a payer standpoint, I would say it's a top priority. I think payers generally feel that they have been positioned, maybe inaccurately, And uh, the data would tell you that most of the friction points for payers come actually at the provider level. So when you see a star rating and uh, they just came out and some folks uh, have dropped off, the plans have dropped off, it is the providers. So where we're seeing a big movement is for them asking us to evaluate the star ratings based upon their provider network and who's performing in those areas. Because again, the patients see their experience, whether it's a billing experience or getting access as part of the plan problem. That's a really interesting insight because it's as much as we want to cast the characters in the ecosystem, it is a ubiquitous experience for most folks in terms of the back end of it. Maybe shifting a little bit, you do a lot around, and you brought it up earlier, around employee and clinician engagement and issues like burnout. When people come to you now and come to your organization now and say, hey, how do I solve my burnout issues? Or how do I think about my burnout issues? What's your guys' response? And how do you think about sort of that overall equation and how many people we've had leave the profession through COVID and all the things that are going on wrapped up in that issue? I won't take you through sort of the whole, there's a series of things that we would recommend, but I'll I'll talk more as a board level at a health system and looking at what we're, we're doing there and thoughts around that and what our data would show. First of all, communication and transparency from a leadership standpoint are critical. If the employee does not trust their leadership, then you're going to see retention issues for the organization. So you brought up the word trust. Trust is so important as we start to look at the workforce. I think we also have to recognize the workforce is changing. I'm a little bit older. When you used to come to work, you were told to show up before your boss, leave after your boss, don't ask about vacation, and uh, really don't take vacation. And that is not the workforce we have today. And so we're going to have to come up with new models 
the 12 hour work shift for nursing, it's pervasive across our country. And there's reasons why it covers the 24 hour clock. And I, I've heard all the reasons, but sit uh, on a floor for 12 hours and see how hard that is. And I, I know you get to do it for four days and you get three days off, but you lose your life for four days. I don't think as we have new nurses coming in to the, the system that they're going to want to do that. So we're going to have to figure out the gig economy of nursing. We're also going to have to figure out providing additional support for nurses and clinicians. Uh, you know, we have physicians who go home at night and have dinner with their family and then go back on Epic to uh, do work all night. It's not a uh, lifestyle that you can sustain. So we're going to have to look at the entire delivery of care and what support systems, both technology and personnel, we can put in place to ease that burden for folks and let nurses be in front of patients and let clinicians be in front of patients and take away those tasks that can be done either through technology or uh, individuals. So like the given I think we hear a lot about is the AI and the automation and the tech and to your point, the example you gave inbox management and how that gets solved through some of the tech. But the first point I think is the really important point you made, which I'd be curious your perspective a little bit more on is we need to make changes to the clinical enterprise. Absolutely. And then so like, I mean, that's the part that not many people talk enough about. I mean, your point about the 12 hour shift for four days, that's, I mean, really salient in my opinion. I think, again, I want to emphasize because I have a lot of clients out there who are trying to solve this problem and it's going to take a while, but they they don't let people fly planes for 12 hours. And there's a reason you get tired and safety events occur. We've known this since the 80s, safety events occur at the end of shifts. And I I lost a friend to a safety event years ago where there was a shift change and, and bells and whistles weren't answered. It's a really hard job. And we should recognize that and think of the design. If you go to a design lab, they would not design it the way that it's operating now. And I think our industry, it's time for innovation. And listen, AI is going to play a big part in it, taking away mundane tasks. I don't think you can get through a conversation today with anybody that they don't say AI. The development of it may be slower than we'd all hope, but we're working hard to identify those tasks that could be taken out of the clinician space and really throughout the organization. But it's fun. If you want to look to the positives, what an exciting time to think about redesigning healthcare. But your point, if you you started on that, if you think about the demographic shift of the workforce and what those attributes and needs are versus a clinical model that was designed many, many moons ago, there's this really interesting intersection, to your point, that actually has to be dealt with probably sooner or later, regardless of what technology we point at the problem. We have a workforce that wants to be engaged. They're passionate about why they got into healthcare. They want to be developed. They want to be educated and continue to grow in their job. They want to deliver good care, but they want to be able to go home and have a life and do what their peers are doing. And the challenge is a lot of these young nurses coming out of uh, school, they have their friends who are working from home three days a week and uh, and or have become uh, uh, where they uh, live in Portugal and do their work from there, uh, tourists uh, working. And so it's a different environment. So it brings a lot of opportunity too. And I, I think designing from within and, and looking at some other organizations and what they've done will make a lot of sense. But we've got to think about the job too, from the standpoint, how many other jobs you go to work uh, where you might catch something that could be fatal to you. COVID changed the entire workforce, the, the view, because there, there were diseases that, yes, you had to be infectious diseases that you had to be very careful, but there was nothing ever like COVID. And that's changed the workforce. And 
the stress that they're experiencing. So organizations have to have a strategic plan around engagement of their workforce, how to make sure they're lessening the burden on the workforce, educating the workforce, coaching, teaching. Because the other thing we see with young nurses is they're sitting on a floor and they're scared because they're new and they don't want to hurt someone. And so making sure that we have the infrastructure and the resources to really change the way care is delivered. And have you seen many examples? Last question on this point is where people are starting to move away from that kind of 12 hour shift yet and changing that model? Oh, there's plenty, there. plenty of people have. I believe if we look out three or four years from now, there will be very few places that have 12 hour shifts. I can see a world where you've got a workforce and uh, there's an Uber application and uh, you're filling out your workforce, you've got kind of two choices. You you set your schedules and then there's openings in those schedules and you've got a workforce that's committed to filling those spots based upon time. I could see a four-hour shift, but somebody come in in the morning and then go be a mom or a dad in the afternoon. Well, let's get to the final third of our chat, which I think might be one of the more interesting parts too, which is like, look, you've been in and out of the entrepreneurial spirit for a long time, all the way back to your point about your dad being an entrepreneur and a veterinarian. When you think about the crazy healthcare world that you've now seen for many decades and we're now describing today, what advice would you give people that want to continue to start businesses in this crazy world? I teach a class once in a while to folks about this. And first of all, uh, being an entrepreneur sounds terrific. You've been through this you have to prepare to be bankrupt because your idea may not work. And I encourage people when they're young, do it uh, do it while you can take the risk. And uh, I admire anyone who takes an uh, entrepreneurial path. And if I think about mine, I failed a couple of times early with ideas and had to keep changing it. So I tell people, do it. Understand uh, you know, a few things. Understand your model and really critically understand it. With the technology today, you can build a beautiful model for a beautiful company. But will anybody buy or need what you're offering? And so think about it very critically. Do not read your press clippings. Uh, the concept of I want to be a unicorn, we've, we've seen in our industry, unicorns don't actually exist. And a lot of them uh, fail. I mean, the average failure rate for startups is uh, 9 out of 10. So be prepared to be nimble. And surround yourself with good people. I've always hired people who I think are smarter than me. That might be a low bar, some of my friends might say, but really having a, a solid team and a team you can build on. And Press Gainey, for years, there are people that I'd worked for for 14 years with three companies in the health system. Having a team that you can be nimble with and really think through your program. But it's great work. And uh, it's all about culture. It's really being an entrepreneur and running a big system. There are a lot of commonalities to it. And even at Prescani, I just had a call this morning where we were talking about an idea, which is really terrific. And I said to people, don't, don't think about it fitting into the entire enterprise. Just think about how we entrepreneurially, if we didn't have money to carry us through the rest of the year, how would you deliver that service? And I think every product and service you need to think about if you're running a health system, if I, if I didn't have the money to fund it for long, how would I deliver it tomorrow to our clients in a way in which they would find value in it? And any specific areas right now? I mean, could be things that you're interested in Prescani or just things you're interested in, in general that advice for folks to think about some of the gaps still? Well, I, I think a crisis that we don't talk about is the warehousing of our seniors. If you have been in a, a nursing home, if you're managing a health system where you're trying to get beds back, 
and put people back into assisted living, the delays in there. We are going to have to figure out how to give more care at home. We're going to have to recognize the unpaid workforce. My parents passed away, both of them in the last five years, six months apart. They were married for 70 plus years. I was the caregiver along with my brother. My sisters would come in from out of town occasionally. That's a toll that's uh, taken. We've got many of our caregivers go home to take care of their family. So we've got to look at the burnout that's not only happening in the workplace, but what's happening in understanding for our our workforce, what's happening in their community for them. So getting people at home, I think is going to be critical, caring for them and a, a big opportunity really to redesign healthcare. And I think redesigning this gig economy, how are we going to allow people to come to work and, and really create a place where people can be refreshed and recharged and continue to be passionate about delivering this work? Because there's nothing more worthwhile than thinking you change the course of someone's life positively. And then if you step back and think about it, I ask this question often to people like yourself that have been, been around a few times on this. I was joking. Every decade I walk into an healthcare, I'm like, well, the next decade will be really interesting. So if you look out 10 years, if there's such a thing these days to your point about planning on two to three year cycles, what does this space look like in 10 years? And who like who has the most and who has the least to lose in all of it, given all the moving parts right now? I'm worried about the next 10 years from the standpoint that if I were running a health system, I would be concerned that Washington doesn't have enough of an understanding of the complexity of what's going on. You know, Ted Kennedy whether you like his politics or not, was a healthcare guy and followed health systems very closely. I don't see the leadership right now focused on that. And I'm sure the American Hospital Association is concerned about it and trying to figure that out. But the model as it works, the payment model seems uh, as disjointed as ever. And I've gone to the same meeting of healthcare executives for some, I think it's 30 years now, I can't count. And every year we sit down and talk about healthcare reform and the payment model and value payments and different contracting. We've got to continue to uh, move towards value, but there's not enough of the country on it right now. I think Medicare should look at the way in which they uh, provide service. So if that if the payment system doesn't change, I think there's risk of some breakage that will bring attention to it where the Congress will have to pay attention. You know, the nursing home industry years ago basically went bankrupt. And uh, it's still really underfunded when you look at the way care is delivered in a nursing home and that you or I would not want to find ourselves there. And that's why I'm being nice to the kids, trying to make sure they still continue to, to like me. There needs to be change there. But it's hard right now. And you know, listen, I don't have to tell you about the environment outside of healthcare, but that's also affecting the way our patients present themselves. Workforce violence is an issue for healthcare workers because people come in angry. So I do think there should be a call to action where we should sit down and look at all of these variables. I don't see it happening right now. So it's going to be incremental gains for a period of years, and we're going to have to lean on the private sector and technology to uh, advance a lot of these things. Well, Pat, this has been terrific as always, and really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. Really appreciate the comments. Well, I, I have a series of questions for you. So I'll, I'll, I think I'm going to start a podcast and call you up and ask you because I'm looking for all the help I can get. So if anybody listens to this and they've got ideas for what to do at Press Ganey, please give me a buzz. And I appreciate you. You're one of the great innovators out there thinking of these ideas. So I really appreciate your time. All right. Great. Thanks, Pat. Nice to see you. 
All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.